Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, as we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 9, uh, Dr. Bruce walked us through these last couple of weeks. We saw Paul's desire to be useful to the Lord in service to others. And so he exercised self-control, he says, like an elite athlete would. He says, I discipline my body to keep it under control. He, I don't run aimlessly, he said. I don't want to be disqualified from the work and its blessings. Now in chapter 10, Paul turns to the Corinthian congregation and speaks to them, urging them to live as Christians ought to live. He wants them to live in a way that honors the Lord. That's going to be chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. We'll get there next week. And that also seeks the good of others, even that many may be saved. That's chapter 10, verses 23 to 33. You can look down at verse 33. He longs for others to be saved. Um, We'll turn to those two issues in the next weeks, Lord willing. But here, at the beginning, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, which is where we are, he speaks of temptation. Uh, In order to honor the Lord and to serve others for their spiritual well-being, we must deal with our temptations, he says. And so he's uh, introducing that topic to us. And we need, we, not just the Corinthians, we need to hear his words to us. So let me invite you to consider God's word beginning at verse 1 down through verse 14. This is the word of God. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them. As an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except 
What is common to man or that is not common to man? God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, you know every heart. You know our temptations, our stumbling, our falling flat on our face. You know the evil which we have indulged and given ourselves permission to. You know all this and you know we need Jesus. I pray tonight that you would speak truth to us. By this truth spoken in love to us, we pray. We would more and more know you and honor you and enjoy you and walk with you and be useful to you. And We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The little boy was in the pantry. His mother heard a noise because he was taking down the cookie jar. And she called out to him, Willie, where are you? He answered, I'm in the pantry. What are you doing there? She asked. He said, I'm fighting temptation. (laughs) I think some of us can relate to that. That's not, of course, the place to fight temptation for cookies, right? That's the place to start running from. But so often, we don't run, right? And uh, Paul has some words to say to us about that and our need too. And so I want you to consider it in three parts. In verses 1 to 5, he tells us why we need to flee. In verses 6 through 11, he tells us why we need to flee. Yes, two points. It's the same point, but they're a little different. And in verses 12 and 13, he tells us how to flee. What we need to remember and remind ourselves of and embrace. So those three things, why, why, and how. In the first place, um, verses 1 to 5, the Apostle Paul tells us, if we don't flee temptation, we may in fact displease the Lord by the sins into which we fall. And so here he begins with Israel's privileges. This is where he speaks of those ancient Israelites who were rescued by the Lord from Pharaoh's cruelty, whom God delivered from slavery so that they could be his people and he could be their God. These Israelites, together as a community, he says, they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. And in that experience of walking on dry land between parted waters at the Red Sea, he says, they were, verse 2, all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, it's a bit of an aside, but it's a wonderful place to point this out. As a 19th century Scott minister once famously put it, four things. One, the Israelites were baptized both adults and infants, for the apostle declares that they were. Two, they were not immersed, a fact uh, to which Moses and other inspired writers testify. Three, the Egyptians who pursued them were immersed. Four, the Israelites had baptism without immersion, and the Egyptians had immersion 
without baptism. <laughs> I just like how that's stated. I realize I'm talking Presbyterianism right there. But anyway, coming back on track, Paul says, you know, they didn't get sprinkled and they didn't get dunked, but they were identified with Moses as God's appointed leader and savior of them. Humanly, he was the mediator of the, of the old covenant. They were in, in walking through the waters and into freedom and rescue, they were engaged by God to follow Moses as their deliverer. They were baptized into Moses. And in verses 3 and 4, he says, not only had they been baptized, but they had a meal. They had spiritual food and spiritual drink. You remember, perhaps, the history. Manna from heaven fell, and they gathered up food. It was... Food miraculously provided. It was spiritual food. It was from the Holy Spirit. And they had, they had spiritual water. Water, if you remember the story, gushed from the rock when they were desperate to drink. And the rock provided them clean, good, healthy water in an arid place. Paul, interestingly, here says the rock was Christ. Not that Christ is literally composed of granite, right? But that he's saying the rock represented Christ. The water was life to them and its source was the rock. But of course, its true source was God. And in particular, the Messiah. In particular, Christ himself, who was with his people and fed his people and provided for his people. Christ was with them, he says, Uh, The same Christ who would much later on declare that all that come to me will never thirst again, spiritually. They had all these advantages, the Apostle Paul says, and this this is what he's driving at. They had all these privileges. They had a kind of baptism into Moses. They had a kind of Lord's Supper, food and drink provided by Christ himself. And uh, notice that the emphasis is on all of them. All were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized, all ate, all drank. They had all these incredible privileges enjoyed by the entire community. And Paul looks at the Corinthians now and says, and you, you've been baptized into Christ. You've been identified with the mediator of the new covenant. You've been engaged to follow him. And he's called you to his table, the the Lord's table, food and drink to nourish you on your pilgrimage. Don't think, Paul says, don't think that just because you've had water applied to you and because you gulf down bread and wine down your throat and into your belly, that you're safe just because you have these things. It might be that some of the Corinthians thought that their baptism and their use of the Lord's Supper guaranteed that they were true Christians with eternal security, no matter how they lived. And Paul says, no, it doesn't. The Israelites had those things, and they perished in the wilderness. Now, this mistake is easily made. It's so easily made, it happens to ministers, periodically in the history of the church and it happens to all people in the pew right uh the, the we sang praise my soul the king of heaven uh based on psalm 103 but a hymn by henry light light was an anglican minister 
for years. And he had a fellow clergyman friend who likewise. And they were both unconverted in the ministry. And the other man... He was just a professional clergyman. He didn't really believe the gospel, uh, but he began uh, to get ill. He was dying, and he began to become afraid. And so Light and he uh, instinctively felt like their sins were not forgiven. They were unprepared to die and to truly meet God. And so uh, they began to read the Bible together. And in reading the Bible, they began to discover how you could be saved and forgiven through Jesus. And this dying friend came to faith in Jesus, true faith. And Light says of of this, he died happy under the belief that though he had deeply erred, there was one whose death and sufferings would atone for his delinquencies. And he says then of himself, Light does, I was greatly affected by the whole matter and brought to look at life and its issues with a different eye than before. And I began to study my Bible and preach in another manner than I had previously done. Henry Light had been a moral guy and a religious guy, a church goer and a minister in the church, actually distributing the Lord's Supper every week to people. And he had not been converted until he was confronted with his need. And he put his faith in Jesus to save him. That's when he began to write hymns. That's how he could write ransom, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me his praise should sing. Or we can speak of another guy, William Haslam, if that's how you pronounce it. He was an Anglican priest who was converted by his own sermon. He was preaching, as all Anglican ministers do, on a text appointed to them by the hierarchy of the church. And that text happened to be the Lord's question to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And in explaining that the Jews had a false understanding of who the Messiah was, that they didn't really grasp Christ Christ himself, he realized he had a false understanding of who Christ was. And what salvation meant by believing in Jesus. And as he was preaching the sermon, faith came to him in the pulpit. And the change was so obvious over him. One man cried out, the parsons converted. And pandemonium erupted in the congregation. And they never did finish the service because they were so excited. Their minister really believed in Jesus now. See, this happens. You can sit here. Day after day, week after week, year after year. And hear the good news. Believe in Jesus and you shall be saved. And yet, think that you do and you don't. Claim to be a Christian and you're not. It's a real danger. And Paul turns to these Corinthians and says, just like the Israelites, they had water applied to their bodies. You know, they were identified with Jesus in baptism anyway. And... And they took, the, they took the spiritual food and drank. But they were far. If you're at all familiar with the history of Israel, then you know an entire generation of these people never made it into the promised land. Their bodies were literally strewn in the wilderness and the desert. And it was their descendants who got to go into the promised land. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, believed the Lord at a decisive time 
and were permitted to themselves go into the promised land itself. Even Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. Am I saying Moses wasn't Christian? Moses wasn't a believer? Moses wasn't saved? No, of course not. Moses was genuinely saved. We know that. He appears in the New Testament on the mountain with Jesus, right? But Moses disobeyed the Lord, and he suffered loss on account of it. Fatherly discipline was applied to him, and he did not get to go into the promised land with the people of God. And Paul is saying, these ancient Israelites, these are our people. This is our family. They are, he says, our forefathers. And these things, he says, happen to them as types. Uh, They happen to them as uh, types. A type is a person, place, thing, or event in the past, which prefigures or foreshadows later persons, places, things, and events uh, that are to come. Well, they, the Israelites, foreshadowed the Christian church. And yet, verse 5 With most of them, God was not pleased, that first generation. And the evidence of that is they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, what an understatement. Many of them, actually it's most of them, but of an entire nation of millions, only two made it into the promised land. They experienced God's fatherly displeasure at their rebellion to his instructions, and we must learn our lessons from that, which could go in one of two directions. We must learn, perhaps, that you can participate in a community that enjoys the greatest spiritual benefits and outward privileges of fellowship and food and baptism, and yet not be a Christian if you don't trust Jesus to save you. Or you can have the greatest spiritual privileges and outward benefits and even believe in Jesus and have him to be all your righteousness and yet live a life displeasing to the Lord and experience fatherly chastisement. Don't abuse your privileges, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, as the Israelites did. What sort of people are we if we do? Well, maybe not truly Christians. Certainly spiritually unhealthy Christians, if we do. And God, we must say, will not have his privileges abused forever. He is absolutely patient and gracious, but he is not permissive. And a a delay in discipline is not consent to rebellion And if we don't run from temptation, but follow like the Israelites into temptation and rebellion, we may end up displeasing the Lord, is Paul's point. Now, and that's why we must flee temptation. The second reason why we must flee temptation is this, verses 6 to 11. If we don't run, we desire evil. And that's an evil thing. He gives four examples that that show that they desired evil and what God did to them. His first example is this. Some of them, he says, verse 7, were idolaters. They worshiped a God other than Yahweh, Jehovah, the the true God of Old Testament who brought them out of Egypt. 
They worshipped another god. The Apostle Paul is thinking here of Exodus chapter 32. When after their deliverance, Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God and he was gone so long. The people got impatient and they said, Aaron, make us gods that we may worship. And, and he gathered the gold and he made the, 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 um, the image of God and they worshipped it. And what's striking about that passage is this. Aaron doesn't say to them, you know, this is the God of Egypt. Let's worship him. He says, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to the Lord. In other words, he wasn't making in his mind an alternate deity, but a representation, he thought, of the true God and inviting the people to worship the true God by means of that idol. And this is precisely the kind of temptation the Corinthians were experiencing. In a land of temples to Greek and Roman gods like Zeus and Apollos and Aphrodite, they were tempted on the one hand to go into those temples and worship those deities and thereby break the first commandment to have no other God but the true Lord be their God. But they were also tempted in light of all their neighbors' worship of their deities to break the second commandment by making for themselves an idol of the true God and thereby thinking they're worshiping the true God by means of that idol. And so breaking the second commandment. And either way, it's idolatry, it's false worship, and our, in our day, our, our idolatry may take different forms than theirs, but we can create for ourselves all kinds of deities. David Foster Wallace, who's uh, now passed on, uh, but he's a, a, a widely respected essayist, and then he gave a commencement address in which he said these words, not from a Christian perspective, but listen to what he says. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of life, there's no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, you see where he's not a Christian, (laughs) is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth, he says. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's true, friends. I mean, you and I can make an idol of almost anything. And the Israelites, Paul says, they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And that word play is the same word used for Isaac sporting with his wife in intimacy. (laughs) That's what they did before the golden calf. It was a big orgy after a giant feast. 
And so likewise, the Corinthians were tempted to engage in these temple feasts and gluttony and drunkenness and orgies like their neighbors or like they used to do before they became Christians. And Paul says, we must not. That's not how we worship Jesus. We worship Jesus from the heart by loving what is good and hating what is evil. That's his first warning. The second example, the second is that some of them were, in fact, sexually immoral. Here he's referring to Numbers chapter 25. The the neighboring nation uh, in Moab, the Midianites, prostituted their daughters to the Israelites in order to lead the Israelite men out of worship from the true God and into the worship of the Midianite God. And almost 25,000 people died in a single day, Paul says. They were punished by God for it. And as so often happens, even in our own day, sexual immorality does lead at times to disease and sometimes hastens death. And we must learn from their example to hate evil, even of this kind. But we will never flee it until we hate it. You will never flee any sin until you've begun to hate that sin and, and love what's good that you ought to be running to. So God has to work in our hearts, but we must learn to love what he loves. Some of them, he says in the third place, put Christ to the test, and we should not do that, he says. And here, I think, is a reference to Numbers chapter 21. The people became impatient on the way, this great pilgrimage, and they spoke against God and Moses, says Numbers 21, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They began to hate even the manna God provided. You see what they were saying? They got tired of the length of time it took them to go out of Egypt and into the promised land. They got tired of the pilgrimage. They got tired of walking with God and living on what he provided for them. And they began to grumble and complain and wish they were back in Egypt. So likewise, you can almost hear a Corinthian complaining, right? Maybe even about the Lord's Supper. Why do my friends who worship Zeus get to eat much bigger feasts before him and then engage in all those things they do? And I got a little bread and wine. Tired of that. Why is it taking so long for Jesus to come back and I have to, I have to be satisfied with these tokens of him, but I want to see him face to face. Tired. I want to go back. That's what they wanted to do. And it's interesting here, Paul says they tested Christ. He doesn't say they tested God or Yahweh or the Lord, which he could have easily said because that's what the Old Testament says. But Paul understands the pre-existence of Christ, that he was the rock that was with them, that he was the Lord who redeemed them, that, that before Jesus was born into this world as a baby and grew up and died on a cross, Jesus already lived, he was already God, and they were testing him. And what happened to them in that test? God sent serpents among them and bit at them. And their only rescue was that Moses had to make a bronze serpent and lift it up. And those who looked to the bronze serpent were healed. And Jesus says, I am that to all of you. Look to me and I will save you. But it is a foolish thing to try the patience of Christ. And fourthly, it says some of them grumbled against God, verse 10. And that happened on numerous occasions 
but certainly the Corinthians were tempted to that just as we are. It's a kind of love of evil in the heart because it's the love of what God has not given us and a failure to love him and be content with what he has given us. And so they grumbled and complained against his providence. And we're all tempted to that. And they, he says, were destroyed by the destroyer. The death angel came in the took. Now look, these are their sins. And Paul's warning the Corinthians because they're tempted to them. And so are we. If Christians didn't fall into just these kinds of sins, couldn't fall into these kinds of sins, Paul wouldn't have to warn us about them. But in fact, as Christians, if we know ourselves, we see these sins in ourselves, at least our capability. And we see how easily we can fall into longing for evil things, worshiping other things, sexual immorality, putting the Lord to the test, grumbling against his providence in our lives. These are exactly the kinds of things we find in our hearts. And they are the sins we must flee, Paul says. Listen, believing that Jesus was crucified for us because of our sins, if you believe that, you're a different person and you have begun to want to be free of the things that put him on the cross. One of the chief marks of true conversion and of a person growing in the grace of the Lord is that you've begun to love what he loves. And to hate what he hates. You've begun to long to be free of what is evil. And embrace what is good. And it's one of the chief marks of a person who's spiritually dead or certainly spiritually very sick. It is hard to be certain which is which. It's one of the marks of that kind of person that you have set your heart on evil to want it, pursue it. And embrace it. That can be deadly, Paul says. And no, no Christian is perfect. All Christians are called to be repentant. And when we find that kind of love of what is evil in our hearts, it doesn't mean we're not Christians. And it doesn't mean we should be shocked. It means we're still sinners. It's the very reason we need to be forgiven. And we need to be changed. And we long to be made perfect. And as we discover these things, we ought to mourn. We ought to grieve our sin. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But if we don't run, we displease the Lord. And if we don't run, we desire what is evil. How then do we run? How do we flee temptation? And this is where Paul finishes in verses 12 and 13. I want to highlight four things. One, he says... Own up to your weakness. Know yourself and don't pretend that you're strong. Notice verse 12. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The Israelites and the Corinthians were puffed up with conceit at what great people they were. And how they were beyond the need to be faithful, diligent, sober, self-disciplined, careful, watchful, circumspect, purposeful. They didn't pray with the psalmist, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. May they not rule over me. 
They didn't learn to sing with the hymn writer. Take away the love of sinning. Alpha and Omega B. Be my beginning and my end. My all in all. Be everything to me. They didn't, they didn't learn to relate to the Lord that way. But they were full of themselves. They thought they were strong. And Paul says, take heed. You who think you can withstand temptation. Lest you fall. Know yourself. Own up to your weakness. Then you'll lean on the Lord. Number one. Number two. Don't make excuses. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, don't think you're exceptional. Don't think you have a really, really good reason why you've sinned. And nobody else can really understand. I mean, nobody's really had your challenges. And it's okay that you sin because you've had it so much harder than everyone else. I mean... Everybody else is just merely human, but you've experienced something extraordinary. And Paul says, no, you've never experienced a temptation that isn't common to man. Don't make excuses. You don't have any. Number two. Number three, put your hope in God. God is faithful, he says. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see what Paul is saying? He's saying God is sovereign over your temptations. He's absolutely on his throne, governing, restraining, limiting, and permitting temptation and providing with it a way of escape. Now, how can he give the way of escape with the temptation if he isn't ultimately in charge over temptations? Now, don't misunderstand. God does not tempt anyone to evil. He cannot because he's good and he's not evil. But as a good God, he can, in fact, test his people. And actually, in the Bible, that word test and that word temptation are the exact same word in context. Tells you which one it is. It's a temptation if it is enticing you to evil. It is a test if it is Showing you your own heart, exposing your pride, calling you to believe in Jesus and to lean more faithfully on him. It has good purposes in mind, it's from God. As it has bad purposes in mind, it is of the devil and your own evil heart. God does not tempt you to sin, but he tests his people and calls us to faith. God is not the author of sin, that's James. And when a temptation comes your way, God who is on his throne, limiting, restraining, and permitting, also gives you a way of escape. And he couldn't do that if he wasn't sovereign, and he wouldn't do that if he wasn't faithful. But he is, and he's for you. And he's not against you in the circumstances of life. So that's the third thing. First was on up to your weakness. The second, don't make excuses. The third, put your hope in God. And the fourth, recognize the way of escape and flee. Easier said than done. I have a lot of experience with recognizing the temptation, but not the way of escape. But Paul says, run away from it by running to the Lord. 
He is the only direction in which you can flee that keeps you from running into temptation. And yet the painful reality that you and I know all too well is that we do give in, don't we? The bait is dangled and we bite. The the train rolls into the station, the doors open, and we step into the train and we go with it. And sometimes it's simply very easy to do. And then afterwards, sometimes we feel remorse or guilt or shame or frustration, and we wonder if we're ever going to get any better. And I want to say to you this, Paul says, just being in the church isn't going to save you. Just being around Christians doesn't make you one. What is a Christian? Somebody who believes in Jesus as Savior and Lord, and they are forgiven and they are righteous in Him. And we do not add to that finished work, it was sufficient We don't save ourselves, he saves us. But we have not yet arrived at the fullness of the true eternal and heavenly and everlasting promised land. We are pilgrims from here to there. We have begun, not finished, the race that is set before us. And God, who began a good work in us, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's his promise. That's his part. For our part, we must follow Christ. We have been saved to belong to him, to know him, worship him, and become like him. And this we must press on to do. Not because grace is nullified by the way that we run, but because grace is verified by the way we run. That is the way to be productive in the service of the Lord, to honor him and to be useful to others. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Jesus. We know that we need him more than we think we do. Forgive all our hidden faults. Keep your servants from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over us. Oh, To grace, how great a debtor daily we're constrained to be. Let your grace, now like a fetter, bind our wandering hearts to thee. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Take our hearts, take and seal them, seal them for your courts above. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.